So this is going to be the first of two parts, two different sermons entitled The Pathway to Forgiveness. How many of you ever had to dealt with forgiveness before? Either forgiving someone or being forgiven yourself. All of us have, right? I mean, it's not uncommon to our walk on this planet and to who we are. Children, goodbye. Well, they were leaving anyway, so I thought I would go ahead and... Hi, Abby. Hi, Olive. You're cute. I love grandchildren. If you're not there yet, boy, aren't they great, those of you that have them? Yeah. Because, like, you can do anything you want with them, and there's, there, it's all good. You can send them home when you're done. So, <laughs> and then you have to ask forgiveness, So, which is what we're talking about this morning. So... Let's jump into this. All of us at one time or another have been caused pain and or injury by the actions of another which caused us anger, frustration, grief, etc. So I thought about this. These actions, to me, seem to fall into three general categories which I will call accidental, that is, accidental pain or injury justified pain and injury, or perhaps unjustified pain and or injury. So, accidental pain or injury occurs through circumstances beyond anyone's control. For example, the cookie jar fell off the counter, no one is getting a cookie. Okay, that causes me pain, but it's unavoidable, so you kind of, it's okay. Justified pain typically occurs when we choose to ignore or forsake a rule or directive. For example, you took a cookie out of the cookie jar without permission, so now you're getting a spanking. Unjustified pain occurs when we feel victimized. Your brother took a cookie out of the cookie jar, therefore you're getting a spanking. What? Are you listening? Right? Or, if something happens that that we feel like we don't deserve. I worked so hard to bake those cookies, now they're gone, and I didn't get any. What's up with that? So, we're usually able to shrug off and forget about pain we've placed in the accidental category. Most of the time, we'll remember justified pain, but aren't negatively impacted by it because it's deserved and we were warned. We broke a rule. In fact, many times we embrace, we embrace accidental or justified pain as just pathways to growth. They help us grow. There, there's pain in this world, and if we learn from it, then we become better persons, right? It's the third category, unjustified pain, that, that we struggle with. And frankly, can cause, for some people, a lifetime of negative effects like anger, bitterness, self-loathing. Depression, the list goes on. If we don't come to terms with it, um, it it will cause those things. And it's especially true if pain involves betrayal or intentional deception. How many of you have ever been betrayed? How many of you have ever been intentionally deceived, where you found out someone was like, so all of us have experienced that. Ironically, it's the third category, 
this category of unjustified pain that God will most use if we allow him to, to refine our character. The antidote to the spiritual poison of what we perceive to be unjustified pain is quite simply forgiveness. Now, before you say, yeah, but Mark, you don't, you don't know what happened. You don't know what that person did. You don't, you don't, you're not in my shoes. You, you, don't, you don't understand. Before we go there, let's just say this. For the Christ follower, forgiveness is essential. In fact, for us, those who follow Jesus, it's a requirement. All of Christianity is wrapped up in the truth of forgiveness. In his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. We say a great many things in church and out of church too without thinking of what we're saying. For instance, we say in the creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I had been saying it for several years before I asked myself why it was in the creed. At first sight, it seems hardly worth putting in. If one is a Christian, I thought, of course one believes in the forgiveness of sins. It goes without saying. But the people who compiled the creed apparently thought that this was a part of our belief which we needed to be reminded of every time we went to church. And I've begun to see that, as far as I am concerned, they were right. To believe in the forgiveness of sins is not nearly so easy as I thought. Real belief in it is the sort of thing that very easily slips away if we don't keep on polishing it up. We believe that God forgives us our sins but also that he will not do so unless we forgive other people their sins against us. There's no doubt about the second part of this statement. It's in the Lord's Prayer, was emphatically stated by our Lord, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. No part of his teaching is clearer, and there are no exceptions to it. He doesn't say that we are to forgive other people's sins, provided that they are not too frightful or uh or providing uh, that there are extenuating circumstances, or anything of that sort. We're to forgive them all, however spiteful, however mean, however often they're repeated. If we don't, we shall be forgiven none of our own. When it comes to the question of our forgiving other people, it is partly the same and partly different. It's the same because here also, forgiving does not mean excusing. Many people seem to think it does. They think that if you ask them to forgive someone who's cheated or bullied them, you're trying to make out that there was really no cheating or no bullying. But if that were so, there would be nothing to forgive. They keep on replying, but I tell you, the man broke a most solemn promise. Exactly. That is exactly what you have to forgive. This doesn't mean that you must necessarily believe his next promise. It does mean that you must make every effort to kill every taste of resentment in your own heart, every wish to humiliate or hurt him or pay him out. The difference between this situation and the one in which you are asking God's forgiveness is this. In our own case, we accept excuses too easily. In other people's, we do not accept them easily enough. Forgiveness doesn't always come easily or all at once. Many times it's a process. The deeper the pain, the longer the process can take. However, the process is where we'll find the Lord at work if we seek Him earnestly 
with humility and expectancy. And this is where our prayer life comes into play. Those who practice substantial, disciplined prayer will find the process of forgiveness greatly effective in this development of Christ-like character. One thing is certain. It's impossible for a person to follow Christ and experience forgiveness from sin if they are unwilling to forgive others for pain inflicted. So, this week's text is coming out of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. And I'm going to read these verses, and then we'll take a deeper dive into it. Chapter 11, verse 12. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, he Jesus. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city, back to Bethany. And we can assume it was dark, because the next verse says, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree, withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And uh, many versions include uh, an appendix to that, or just a little add-on that says, if you do not forgive those who have sinned against you, don't expect that the Father in heaven is going to forgive you of your sin. So, Just FYI, it's generally agreed that the fig tree, which was in full leaf, now keep this in mind, when a fig tree is in full leaf, full bloom, typically it will have some kind of fruit on it. And we know that it seems like uncharacteristic of Jesus, like, okay, that poor fig tree, why would you just go by and curse it like that? But understand that this whole fig tree thing is a symbolic representation of Israel. We see it in Hosea 9, we see it in Jeremiah 24, we see it in other places where in the Old Testament, Israel is is referred to symbolically as a fig tree. So understand that when Jesus looked at this fig tree and said, may no one ever eat from you again, and the next day it was withered, what was going on in the disciples' minds were were these references that they probably would have known and understood and like, "Uh, oh my goodness. Now, sandwiched between these instances, we have this time of teaching 
in the temple, right? So we have to understand what's going on. Remember that the Abrahamic covenant was built on faith. Remember the verse? Now, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. I'm going to say that again because that's one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. And Abraham believed God. Well, what did he believe God? Uh, You're old and decrepit, but you're going to be the father of of many nations, and and your wife is like the age of a great-grandmother, but she's going to bear children. Abraham believed him. He believed God. God ratified the covenant. That was counted to Abraham as righteousness. That's mind-blowing, folks. That's how important faith is. Clearly, in this case, coming back to Israel and the fig tree, if you want to use the term, the old proverb, the fig had fallen far from the tree. Jesus was acknowledging that Israel was no longer fruitful. There were a lot of leaves there. It looked great on the outside. It looked like things were flowering everything. When you get under those leaves, into the branches, there, it was empty. There was nothing there. In the temple, usury, rather than worship, had become the foundation supporting temple activity. If you're not sure what usury is, that's the ill gain of money. Deceiving people. Cheating. After the cleansing, note that Jesus began to teach on Israel's heritage, one based on prayer and faith. And, and this, I, this is hard for me to put my mind around too, except for the fact that I know my own heart, so I, I see it. The religious leaders were completely focused on the wrong thing. They were really, really angry at Jesus, but their focus was on their own authority and the loss of profit. They, they completely missed what was happening here. In fact, for them, this was the event that was the kingpin event. After this, they began to plot to kill Jesus. And this event event led to his arrest and his trial and his uh, crucifixion and, of course, subsequent resurrection. At any rate, after spending the day in the temple ministering, it's assumed that Jesus Disciples went back to Bethany that night, probably didn't see the fig trees, probably dark, so there was no marker, there's no reminder to see. So it wasn't until the next morning that the tree was withered, and they commented on the fact. And I love how Jesus addresses this. It reminds me of the instance with Nicodemus. Um, remember when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and, and, he, and he, he starts with a little flattery, right? Like he had asked him to meet him, and it's kind of in the dark, in the shadows, he don't want anyone to see. And so he figures, I'm, I'll start with a little flattery here. Uh, surely you're a prophet from God, because no one could do these signs unless they were sent from God. So he's like, I'm going to get on good terms with, with Jesus here right out of the gate. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, yeah, thank you. I'm so glad you recognize that. No, Jesus is like, unless you're born again, You'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus is like, wait, what? Who? What? Jesus does kind of the same thing right here. Peter says, hey, look, this fig tree is is withered. It's, It's like from the root up, it's dead. So Jesus doesn't acknowledge the fig tree, but he reminds the disciples of their faith covenant and how it works. Within the context of the faith covenant, prayer is a given. Not if you pray, 
But when you pray, notice that he said, verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you, say, whatever you ask in prayer, uh, believe that you receive it. And whenever you stand praying, not if you decide to pray, but whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. So it was, it was taken for granted that people who claim to be in love with the Father claim to, in our case in the New Covenant, follow Christ and are born again, we have a developed prayer life. Part of our life, there's a, there's a compartment, if you want to think of it that way, in our life that we dedicate to prayer. And it's not like, oh God, I didn't get that raise I wanted. What happened? It, or, or, oh God, I got a hat, flat tire. Please help me out. It's, oh God, I, I recognize that I'm a fallen, sinful creature and I'm so grateful for my salvation. Teach me your ways. Show me how to walk. Show me how to live this life so that I can be a blessing to others. And it's seeking his face and understanding how he's leading and guiding you day to day. And within that kind of context of prayer, where we're engaging in it regularly, guys, forgiveness is a given. And it brings us right back to where we started. So just a few points here. We're going to discuss faith, prayer, and forgiveness, without which neither can exist. I'm going to say that again. We're going to discuss faith, prayer, and forgiveness, without which either one of these can exist. I'm going to walk through this and just read some scriptures, so stay with me. The expectancy of faith. Expectancy. Like, if I tell Julia we're going to go to Applebee's, let's go to Applebee's for lunch today. Um, if I tell you we're going to go to Applebee's for lunch today, she's not going to come up after the service and go, are we going to go to Applebee's for lunch? Are we really going to? Yes, honey. And then I turn around and talk, and then five minutes later, she, are we going to Applebee's today? No, she, she, I've said we're going to go to Applebee's. Let's go to Applebee's. She expects it. When it's time to go, she's going to be in the car waiting for me, and we're going to go to Applebee's. That's expectancy. It's, it's, it's a knowledge that something is going to happen. The expectancy of faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 9. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, talking about our bodies, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, this earth tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home with the Lord or away, we make it our aim to please Him. And then go right into Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Now we've all, many of us, probably are familiar with that passage, and we understand the importance of faith. But this morning, maybe you can think about faith as being like mortar. You know what mortar is? And I'm not talking about the, the weapon that you, you know, like bombard the enemy with. I'm talking about 
the stuff that goes between bricks or concrete blocks. And if you've ever watched uh, a, a skilled labor guy go, I mean, it's, it's really amazing how they mortar bricks and everything. And when it's done, it's this beautiful brick edifice. It's this, this, you go outside and look at the building when we're done with church, and you'll see the mortar that holds those bricks together. So we, we, we think of faith, faith, faith as the mortar which holds our lives in Christ together. It is that important. We all do this. I do this. Probably frequently we all do this. But, but just because we fail and do it doesn't mean that it's acceptable. We as a people of God should always live by faith. And when we forget to live by faith and we look in a moment at the wind and the sea and the waves and the turmoil and forget that God has a plan and begin to go off on our own and do things that are frankly stupid, when we pull back and go, wait a minute, we need to repent and say, God, help me. Help my unbelief. Living by faith, ultimately aware and expectant that God is going to do what he's going to do, which leads us to letter B, irresistible force. Faith always accomplishes its purpose. Matthew 19, 23-26. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were like greatly astonished, saying, Well, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at him and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And looking back to that passage in Hebrews 11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. There's a deep truth here that we must keep in the forefront of our mind, and that is that those things which we cannot see, this invisible realm, folks, it's more real than the physical realm that we experience with our five senses. But we just, we're just not there yet. We, we don't see it. I'm convinced that when we finally see Jesus face to face, eye to eye, and the veil is stripped off, we're going to go, oh, I get it now. It, it all makes sense. But few of us ever get to that place in this life. And when we do, it's by faith. Okay, remember, so we're talking about these components that exist in the life of a believer. faith. Prayer, Jesus talked about these with his disciples. He, he taught in the temple about prayer, and then following the little thing with the fig tree, he taught his disciples about faith. Let's talk about prayer. Those who are in Christ are legitimate children. And Caleb and Blaze and John and Kalen and, and perhaps others have, have said it's been said from this spot numerous times 
those who have accepted Christ as Savior and Lord and live and walk that way are sealed with the Spirit of promise and with an intention to live holy lives before the Lord can rest in that assurance that we are saved. Legitimate children. And yet, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this. <laughs> are you ready? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And you might be, wait, what, what, Mark? Wait, I thought you said it was all good and we were, it was fine. Oh yeah, but there's still a day of reckoning. Don't misunderstand, there's an accounting. Now, now for the believers, it's different than for unbelievers. At the judgment seat of Christ, all will be laid bare. Every thought, action, deed, good or evil. There will be no posturing, no excuses, no explanations. We will know and be fully known. At the moment we confront our utter depravity, before a holy God, knowing we have no excuse, no alibi, just our pride and rebellion. At that moment, when we recognize the horror of our condition before a holy God and begin to come to grips with our just punishment, Jesus will look us in the eye and reassure us that he's taken those things upon himself. We will stand humbled to our core, but forgiven to the extreme. Our sin and all its horror and ugliness is laid upon our Savior, the Prince of Peace. Perhaps Philip Bliss best captured this moment in the lyrics of his well-known hymn, and let's sing it. My sin, oh, the bliss of this. Oh, I see I'm going to have to do some remedial hymn work. That's okay, I'll sing it for you. It goes like this. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, what happens to it? Is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. That's what happens at the great white throne of judgment for the believer in Jesus Christ. Folks, that's worth an amen. In prayer, we live a paradox. And we see this all through the New Testament. It's about letting go, but embracing. It's about being free, but being a slave. It's about dying so that we can live. And if you're really, really confused right now, you're not alone. That's the nature of our walk as believers in Christ's acts. John 12, 
verse 24 through 26 says, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Did you catch that faith piece? And finally, Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As you grow in your relationship with the Lord, and you become diligent in reading and studying the Word of God, and you become diligent in your prayer and your devotional life, one of the things that you will inevitably learn is that to experience life, there's a part of you that has to die. That to experience freedom in Christ, you have to take the attitude of an humble servant. That you have to let go of certain things which are very temporal, which probably aren't very good for you, and which probably bring a small or large amount of destruction into your life, but it feels really good. You got to, well, at least at some point before it feels really bad. You got to be willing to say no to those things, to let those go, so, so that you can embrace freedom. So let's talk about forgiveness. And this is where I hope that um, we will bring this home a little bit. There are just two. And the first one I've called tearing down the walls. Or living the life of Christ in a passive, aggressive culture. Mark, what does that mean? How many of you are from the upper Midwest? Come on, you're from here. Okay. I'm not from here. Can I just tell you that upper Midwest culture has passive aggressiveness down to a fine art? And it's not always really healthy. When we moved to the upper Midwest in 2001, 21 years ago, One of the cultural behaviors we observed, my family, was the veneer of North Dakota nice. We all know what I'm talking about. Work hard, be kind. I mean, that's like the upper Midwest gospel, right? That's what, like, if you do that, you're going to go to heaven. No! Upper Midwesterners are, by nature, admittedly, incredibly kind and giving. And, in fact, this is the most hardworking people I've ever met. But there's a dark side. 
For example, I never realized that the word interesting could have so many different meanings. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Oh, interesting. I mean, it does. It could either mean you're an idiot or, oh, that's kind of cool. And it's just on how you say the word and the context that it's used. I've learned that people in the upper Midwest, generally speaking, not always true, but generally speaking, are non-confrontational to the extreme. Now, you got to understand, I grew up in Latin America and in the South, the United States. It took me, in fact, I had several conversations with Doug Anderson, the pastor at Bethel Church, before I began to understand. You, you, you don't confront people up here. They don't like to be, people are not confrontational. They don't like that. But that con, non-confrontational tendency leads to passive-aggressive tendencies. So when there is conflict or discontent in the church, and I have to give Caleb credit because he's worked really, really hard and is working really hard, as Blaze and I are and others are, for this to not be true here. Because in most churches where there's an offense or someone's angry or something happens, what do people do? They just disconnect. Maybe they just leave the church, start going somewhere else. And that's not just up here. I mean, that happens everywhere, except in the South, when that happens, you know, people get out their shotguns and plant another church. <laughs> it's, it's not quite as, as, as passive as it is here. And yet, Scripture directs us to live transparently, honestly, and gracefully with each other. In 1 John 1, verses 5 and 6, we read, This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So Buffalo City Church, we must avoid this natural cultural tendency to erect barriers between one another. To be kind and polite to individuals while we harbor anger and or resentment toward them is a reproach to our Lord, especially when he's called us to love each other unconditionally. And let me just tell you, this isn't easy. And it has, sometimes has to lead to hard conversations that we're willing to have the courage and step out and have. That's part of the forgiveness process. If this doesn't happen, if we don't tear down the walls, it's going to be hard to walk in the forgiveness piece. The second thing is removing the blinders. And we all know this verse, at least. I hope we do. If we don't, we're not saved. Let's sing it. Amazing. Stop. Was blind. Was blind. Was blind. But now I see. When John Newton penned these words, his stark emphasis on spiritual blindness serves as a reminder that we are called to walk in the light. In that same passage in verses 7 through 9, it says this If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, 
and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Folks, the greatest antidote to unforgiveness is a deeper awareness of our own weakness and faithless tendencies to have the blinders stripped off so that Mark Reeves can take a look at himself from outside of Mark Reeves and look at just who I am. If you're able to do that, forgiveness will come much more easily. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. And the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the next time you experience what you perceive to be is an unjustified hurt, remember this. Grace given is grace afforded. Grace given is grace afforded. Grace given is grace afforded. Three things you can remember, and you may not remember these um, by memory, but it'll be on the website with the notes if you want to go back. First, in our conclusion, forgiveness is an act of faith, not an emotional response. Those of you that have been through deep hurt and worked through that forgiveness, did you feel like doing that? No. But we, we never really feel like it. It's a decision. It's an act of our will. It's an act of faith. Forgiveness demands that we honestly view ourselves in the light of Calvary, what I just talked about. Had a choir director used to say, remember, when you point your finger at someone, there are three pointing back at you. So to kind of keep that perspective. Finally, number three, and this is the most beautiful thing. So if you've checked out for a minute, come back to me. Forgiveness, forgiveness heals us, heals us from the damage that we incur in this life. Forgiveness brings healing to our spirit, to our soul, when we're damaged in this life. So how does the story end with Jesus? Remember the fig tree and its representation of Israel? Remember how it was the turning point which led to Jesus' arrest? He made an example out of a fig tree for crying out loud. Israel, you're done. I mean, if, if anyone would have had the right to feel betrayed, it would have been Jesus. Who, when he existed in the form of God, had to contend with all of the meanderings of this sinful people, his chosen people, who followed the world so many times. And then when he took on flesh, he was rejected by them. 
I mean, if anyone had the right to get a little upset and indignant, Jesus did. But do you remember how he handled his being victimized? From the cross, he utters the words we all long to hear. Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. Bow your heads with me. In this moment of silence, I'd like to ask you to take some serious note. of things in your life? Could it be that you're dealing with unforgiveness and you know about it? Could it be that somewhere in your past there there was an instance where try as you might, you've just never been able to get over it? Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how many times do I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, no, no. It's seven times 70. The implication being that that process of forgiveness sometimes does not come easily. And maybe, maybe you've done your best to forgive. And maybe you even cried out before the Lord, Lord, help me. You need to persist until that forgiveness comes. And if it has come, and then all of a sudden it resurfaces again, you need to do business with God again and let that person go. Let that thing go. Maybe there's something that in your life that you're unaware of. Maybe there's an unforgiveness there that you, you didn't even know that it's there. God is so faithful. Just ask him. Lord, show me my heart. Show me how I live. Show me if there's anything that's keeping me from you. We won't belabor this, but just a a few more seconds, then we'll stand and sing.